inappropriate. Um, but, in, but in all seriousness, I think it's really special that Bill's able to be here this morning and, and really pray us in. Um, as he said, this is really a culmination. What we're experiencing this morning is the culmination of, of decades worth of prayer, um, hard work over the last year or so. Um, and I just kind of want to remind us from Titus. As a core team, we've kind of been walking through the book of Titus. And the introduction to Titus, Paul says that, the, that God promised salvation before the ages began. I want you to think about that for a second. Just promised salvation before the ages began. And then it says, at the proper time, he manifested through his word, through the preaching of his word, the gospel to that particular people in Titus. So, so what I see in that, as I see before the ages began, God, God considered planning this church. But then at the proper time, we kind of intersect. All of you, us, we intersect with God's purposes. It's a beautiful picture. And as we get started this morning, it really brings me a lot of comfort that he's leading that, that we just need to keep following what he's up to. So excited for you to be here. This morning's going to be a little bit different in terms of preaching. I'm going to go long, uh, settle in. Our, God bless our kids, volunteers, all right? They're right across this wall, so all of you over here, just embrace the loudness that's going to come through that wall at some point. Um, but I thought it would be nice for us to kind of introduce myself a little bit, introduce our church, introduce our series, because we're going to be preaching through um, the book of Acts specifically, if you want to go and throw that up there. Um, and then I'll get into God's word. So we're going to be a little bit longer this morning. Um, so my name is Andrew McClure. As Bill said, I'm one of the pastors here. You'll be hearing from me a, a good bit. Um, but one thing you need to know about my wife and I is that we never thought that we would be here. Like never thought that we would, would be in this city, in this state, in, in America. Um, we had never heard of Richmond Hill uh, up about 10 months ago. Um, we were foreign missionaries. We've been foreign missionaries. We've lived cross-cultural for uh, about the last 10 years. Um, we got married, moved cross-cultural. We built our marriage overseas. We had three out of our four kids overseas. And, and we loved that life, uh, enjoyed that life, really embraced that life. We served in um, Muslim North Africa for a stint. We led and planted a team in Hindu South Asia for a stint. And, and our team was healthy. Our ministry was healthy. We, we were seeing people who had never heard the name of Jesus come to faith through that. It was a really fruitful, purposeful season in our life. And we never considered anything else than that. Um, but then it abruptly, in July of 2019, our host country um, asked us to leave. It was happening pretty regularly in that area, and um, we found ourselves August of 2019 back in the States uh, with nothing. Um, we, we had sold everything when we moved. We, we didn't know what to do. We didn't know where we would land. Uh, ended up taking a job with the missions agency based in Athens, Georgia. Go dogs! You need to go ahead and get that out there. It's part of who I am, okay? I am a UGA graduate. But um, we landed back in Athens, Georgia, working with that, that um, missions agency from a leadership administrative capacity, but all the while knowing it's only a matter of time before God sends us back overseas. Like, it's only going to be, like, we'll just keep waiting. We need to heal. We were hurting after getting kicked out. Our, our kids were hurting. We needed to heal a little bit, but it's just a matter of time before God shows us where, how, when, what, you know, all those things. Well, then this crazy thing happened in March of 2020 that affected a few billion people called COVID, right? Are y'all tired of talking about it? I won't go there too long, but, but COVID happened, and it shut down any kind of travel, right? I mean, it shut down all kinds of things, but definitely kind of any kind of international travel. Um, and my job got really busy. I began to really start to care for our overseas missionaries who were locked down in various countries, going through different restrictions. Um, and it kind of left us reeling, going, well, this is not what we thought. This is not what we had planned. God, we knew we're going to land here, heal up, and then we're going to go, what are you doing? What are you up to? Confused, asking a lot of questions. Long story short, in the middle of that pandemic, God began to do a really, really deep and new work in me. Um, 
I began to have this burden for the American church. It was new to me. It had been about a decade since we had been a part of the American church, in, in worshiping with the American church. But something began to happen where it was like, man, I think God's stirring something. I think something's going on. And my wife was like, no, that ain't God. You know, that's Chipotle or whatever else. <laughs> but that's not the Lord because my wife is a missionary at heart. There's no way we're going to be back in the States. And I just kept thinking something's going on here. Through some radical circumstances, um, it happened. We knew the Lord's calling us stateside, calling us to pastor the American church, but not really knowing what that would look like. We sent out a text to a bunch of friends saying, hey, we're making a pretty big decision. We're leaving this missions agency. We don't know what's next. We just know God's calling us to pastor the American church. And one of those friends is on staff at CBC Savannah. Um, so he says, he called, didn't even respond to the text. He just said, if you're considering states, you should consider Richmond Hill. You know, never been here. We came down, what, October of 2021, because it's 2022, came down October 2021, interviewed with CBC, came and toured Richmond Hill, and we just fell in love. We just knew this is where God's leading us. I think it was the roundabouts. I think it was the roundabouts. Um, wasn't the restaurant options, you know, but there was something about this area that we just knew, man, God's leading us. God's calling us here. Um, but I, I bring that up because um, I want to share a little bit more about that burden, um, what we began to witness in those two years of being stateside and, and really began to experience as we began to re-engage with the American church um, is that generally speaking, like collectively, not, not specific not specific churches, not specific Christians, but just collectively as a culture, it just felt like we were missing the mark a little bit on what church is and, and what our role in church should be. Maybe we had some wrong views of the church. Um, I mean, let me ask you, when you think of church, you think about what your role in the church is, what do you think of? When I say, what is church, this is rhetorical, no need to respond, but when I say, what is church, what, what pops into your mind? What begins to populate your mind? Um, let me share a few common views that I have experienced personally, that I think, I think we have experienced collectively, and maybe one means something more to you than the other, but let me share a few. Um, maybe you think of um, an event, a place that you attend, right? I go to CBC Richmond Hill, so it's an event that I attend, which means I'm a spectator, I'm not necessarily a participator, it's just this event that, that we go to. Um, maybe you think of um, a busy church, a church that's full of a flurry of activity, that have various ministries, you got your men's ministry, your women's ministry, your kids' ministry, your missions, your local food pantry, just a flurry of activity. Oh, Young at Harders, I didn't forget you, you know, Young at Harders, what a statement. Yeah, young at Heart, we're glad you're here. You know, maybe it's just this, this busy, busy church that's just full of a flurry of activity, and that's what church should be. Um, maybe it's a friendly church. You know, you got greeted on the way in. You got some great perk coffee. Oh, three tree, excuse me. We had three tree this morning. Maybe you had some great coffee. You got greeted, nice smiles. It's a place that you feel that, that people are just typically nice. You know, we're not going to talk about their Facebook posts on Monday morning, you know. But Sundays, you know, it's just full of nice people. You're enjoying yourself. Um, feel, feel welcome and feel greeted. Um, maybe it's, and this is probably the most common one, one that I found myself really gravitating towards is a consumeristic church. It's a, it's a place that we shop for, right? There's this phrase that we use, we're church shopping. And, and I don't, I'm not dissing. There, there's a level of truth to that. that we want to find a church that teaches right doctrine with, with their lyrics, with their words. We want to find a church that, that teaches the gospel. So there's a reality there that we need to be discerning in the churches that we choose. But I don't think that's necessarily what we do collectively as America. I think we want to find churches that fits our preference. Music's too loud. I'm, I'm out of there. We, you, what you didn't know is that somebody also told me the music was too soft, you know? So it just didn't fit that preference. So we want to find a church that fits those preferences, and it becomes this consumeristic church. And we as churches are equally as guilty of this. It's not just congregations. 
We get so fearful that people are going to leave or not attend that we want, we want to find what will fit someone's preferences so we can sell you on some religious goods and services that makes you feel good, right? It becomes this American consumeristic mindset, and we bring that into church. So let me ask you an honest question. How many of you, I don't know what your experience in church is. I don't know if you have a long history in church. Maybe you took a little hiatus from church during those COVID years. Maybe you've been in church every Sunday since you were a little baby. But let me just ask, how many of you have ever come to church and just kind of walk away going, man, there's got to be something more? Like, am I... Am I missing something? You, maybe you read the Bible, even the book of Acts, which we're going to be talking about. You, you read Acts and you go, man, their life following Jesus, that doesn't look like my life. And there's this real reality, this real yearning of maybe I'm missing something. I believe that those, those typical wrong views of church, as well as those, those longings that we have in our heart, really reveal that maybe we're not fully understanding the church. Maybe we've kind of misunderstood what the church is and what our role in it is, okay? And there's a principle at play there. When we don't fully understand something, we're destined to miss the mark regarding its purpose, right? If we don't fully understand something, we're destined to, to misuse it or miss the mark regarding its purpose. Let me illustrate this with an incredibly embarrassing story about myself, okay? We're trying to get to know you. You're trying to get to know me. Um, as part of missionaries, we were constantly in positions to misunderstand things. You don't know language. I didn't know what food we were eating. Um, we don't know what the cultural customs and norms are. We're constantly offending people. But after being in South Asia for about 90 days, we had it all figured out. That was, that's not true. It's sarcastic. But we had it all figured out. We really thought that we had it all figured out. We moved to South Asia. Um, Annie was 26 weeks pregnant. We had an 18-month-old at the time. And after being about 90, uh, 90, days, 90 days in, we really thought, we, we figured this thing out. This ancient culture that exists here, we've... We've mastered it. Um, and our language teacher decided to invite us to this very rural, remote village wedding. Okay, Annie's about 35 weeks pregnant at the time, rural, remote village wedding. When I say rural and remote, what pops into your mind? Midway? <laughs> Sun, Sunbury? I, I don't know. What it? That's not it, okay? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about no internet access, no, no Wi-Fi, you're not streaming anything, incredibly rural. They had never seen a child like our oldest son, Josiah. He's toe-headed, blonde hair, blue eyes. Let me just show you a picture real quick. This is Josiah. And they're just staring at him for, for hours, just hours. They, they didn't know what to make of him. Very rural, very remote, but we had it all figured out. And what we knew about that culture, because we were masters of this culture, was that weddings in this culture are a big deal, okay? Big deal. So what we needed to do is we needed to dress traditionally, because you get really dressed up, get dolled up, you go to these weddings, you dress traditional dressing, you, you get these bright colors, and we thought, man, we're masters of this culture. Paul tells us to become all things to all people, to win them for Christ. We need to be like this culture. So I go to the store, and me and my American teammate, and we buy some traditional South Asian outfit. It, it's a man dress. It, it was a man dress. We went and bought these things, really long, really bright colored. We show up to this rural wedding. You know how many people were wearing that traditional dress as men? Two. <laughs> Kid you not, there's, there's proof, okay? We have proof. Please don't screenshot this. It's pink, okay? It's a pink, long kurta. You see the guy behind me, they're wearing like slacks and a dress shirt. You know, I had a, I had a full closet of that and decided to go traditionally. So, okay, that's humiliating. We're done with that. Nobody took a picture of that. Thank you. It's over. When you don't fully understand something, right, you tend to miss the mark regarding its purpose. You tend to abuse some things. Now, traditional weddings in the remote villages, that's embarrassing. That's humiliating. But when we miss the mark or we, we misunderstand the church, the stakes are higher. 
because we're missing the purpose in which I believe we have breath in our lungs. So what does that mean for us? It means that we're going to be studying the book of Acts. As a church, when we start as a church, we're going to be studying the book of Acts. At CBC, we're going to be preaching through books of the Bible. I don't know how long that'll take. We'll probably take a break for Christmas, but we'll probably be here this time next year preaching through the book of Acts because we don't want to redefine the church as we plan. We're not trying to redefine anything. We want to open up God's word and rediscover together what the church is and what our role in it is because this is inerrant. It is inspired and it's authoritative. So we want to hear from it how we should view the church and view ourselves and submit ourselves to it, okay? So that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in the book of Acts. And what we're going to see in the book of Acts is that it is not an event to attend. It's a movement. It's a movement of people that are empowered by his spirit and unified around some common convictions. It's a movement that you heard Bill say began in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago that moved its way through Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's a movement that came to the shores of America in the 1600s. It's a movement that planted what CBC Buford, I think in 1982, a movement that planted CBC Savannah in 2007, and it's a movement that we get to continue today in the planting of CBC Richmond Hill. Do you see that? That this is God's story continually. And that's why we've titled our series Acts is that the story of God's kingdom expanding didn't end when the book of Acts ended. It continues today, and we're a part of that as we plant this church. So extended introduction, get to know me a little bit, get to know our church, get to know our series. Let's open up God's word together. Acts chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible, we, uh, if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, we have one for you. They're in the back on a table on the way out. Please grab it. Take it home with you. We want it in your hands, in your head, in your heart. If you prefer an app, ESV app is probably the app I recommend. I use the ESV version of the Bible. Um, but we're also going to have the scriptures on the screen for you this morning. So let me dive right in. Acts 1, 1 through 2. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. All right, the first thing I want us to see is he begins this book by saying, in the first book, O Theophilus, which is implying what? This is book number two. This is book number two. So when we look at the book of Acts, we need to think in terms of volumes. This is a second volume of a two-volume set. Anybody know what the first volume is? That's right, the Gospel of Luke. Luke is the author of Luke. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. We know that for a variety of reasons. I won't spend a lot of time going into that, but we see that Luke was a personal companion of the Apostle Paul throughout the book of Acts. He testifies to that in Philemon, in Colossians, in 2 Timothy. Um, but we also see that in the introduction to Luke, as well as the introduction to Acts, that he addresses these two volumes to the same person, some guy named Theophilus. Okay? Don't know who that is, but that's found in Luke. He, he writes to Luke, O Theophilus, that you may have certainty. I'm writing these things to you, that you may have certainty regarding the things uh, or concerning the things that you have been taught. So he's writing to Theophilus for a particular purpose, and I want us to see that purpose. That purpose is so that you can know without a shadow of a doubt that what we're going to see in Luke and in Acts is the truth. The truth, capital T, truth. You can have certainty of what has transpired. So Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, Volume 1. He wrote the book of Acts, Volume 2. So we need to think in terms of volumes. Volume 1 is what Jesus began to do and to teach. 
Volume 2 is what he is continuing to do and to teach. Volume 1 begins with the birth of Christ all the way up into his ascension. Volume 2 begins with the ascension of Christ and continues arguably up until this day, until his inevitable return as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That story is continuing. Volume 1 begins with what Jesus did presently while physically present on earth. Volume 2 is what he does through his physical presence, which is who? Us, the body, the church, filled with his spirit. That's what we have here. We have volume one and we have volume two. But before we even dive deep into volume two, I'm going to spend this morning looking at our intermission, looking at the the break in between. What happens at the conclusion of volume one and the beginning of volume two? Because that's really significant for us. If we want to know what the church is and what our role in it should be, we have to understand what happened in the intermission. Because what we see is a radical transformation occurred, a radical shift, like a dramatic shift, and it's reflected in the lives of his apostles, in the lives of his disciples. Volume 1 concludes with the disciples in hiding, locking doors secretly, they're they're, uh, fearful, they're doubting, they're reluctant, they're hesitant, they're confused. That's the end of volume 1. But you don't have to go too far into volume two to see these guys are different. Like something has happened that has radically transformed this group of men. We see them in in, in the beginning of volume two. They're preaching the gospel boldly, publicly. They're preaching the gospel to authorities, even telling them, it's you that crucified the Savior. Pretty bold. They're preaching the gospel in prison. They're willing to go to their death for this. What happened? What changed between the end of volume one and the beginning of volume two? Now, if you're a good Bible student, you're going, it's obvious, the provision of the Holy Spirit. Well, yeah, okay, hang in there, you know. That's next week. We're going to talk about that. But there's two other things that occurred in this intermission that we quickly overlook that are really important for us. If we want to know what the church is, what our role is, how do we get our hands on that dramatic shift, we need to see this intermission. So we're going to be jumping between the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24, and Acts chapter 1. And the first thing I want to show us is that the first thing that happened in this intermission is that Jesus gave them proofs. He gave them proofs. Look with me at um, Acts 1-3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. He gave them proofs. Proving the reality of his resurrection is what brought about this radical transformation in them. You you with me? He was proving that he was not dead. He's actually alive. That that would probably change you, wouldn't it? Put yourself in their shoes through volume one, okay? You're you're a tax collector. You're a fisherman. You get selected and called by Jesus to be a part of his entourage. You're seeing him raise the dead, heal the sick. You're walking with him. You go, this guy is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the king. And then your time with him begins to conclude as you're entering into Jerusalem, and he's not riding on a white horse. What's he riding on? A donkey. And all the masses of people come out, and they begin laying palm branches in front of him, claiming Hosanna in the highest. King. King's coming. He's coming into Jerusalem. And if you're one of his disciples, you're thinking, finally, no longer are we going to be oppressed by the Roman government. We're going to have a king like we had in King David who's going to restore our fortunes. He's going to get rid of these Romans. We're going to be up in in power again, and the king is going to sit on his throne. He's going to have a crown of gold on his head, right? That's what you're thinking. The whole time you're walking with Jesus through volume one, you're thinking that, but instead of a crown of gold, what's he get? Crown of thorns. Talk about expectations being obliterated. I mean, Jesus gets arrested. He gets flogged. 
He gets scorned, and what do you do as his follower? Get out of Dodge. They ran. They hid. They denied even knowing him. And from a distance, they follow him and watch him get hung on a cross and watch him die. And with his death, so goes your hope. That's the end of volume one. Just this, this deep loss of hope. So Jesus shows up. But before he shows up, the disciples are so confused. They're so bewildered. They just, they just need, they need a little bit of me time. They need some space to get some clarity of mind, maybe, maybe a place they can think and get some clarity because they're so confused by what has happened. So what do these guys decide to do? The only thing in the world that can bring clarity of mind. Go fishing. It hadn't changed for 2,000 years. That's what happens. You go fishing. And as they're fishing, these women of their party, this is Luke chapter 24, verse, you, you can look there in verse 10, verse 11. The women come running to these disciples as they're bewildered, as they're confused, and they say, we went to the tomb. You know what we found in there? Nothing. And an angel appeared to us and said, why are you seeking the dead among the living? He's alive. He's not here. He has risen. So these women come to these confused, bewildered, uh, fearful apostles and begin to tell them, Jesus is alive. But in Luke 24, 11, they said, but these words seemed to them an idle tale. They didn't believe them. So then the next day, Verse 13, we see these two disciples, they're walking on this road to Emmaus, about a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem, and they're walking and they're discussing these events. They're discussing their hope, who had been in this physical reality of a king that would establish the kingdom of Israel once again, and how that was bashed, that he died. And they're talking about how these women had come and began to tell them, he's not dead, he's actually alive. Jesus appears to them, walks on the road with them, talks with them a little bit, eats food with them, and as he breaks bread, it says their eyes were opened and they recognized him. You know what happens as soon as they recognize him? Poof. He's gone again. Jesus disappears. They don't even finish their dinner. Just lace up their ASICs, jet it back to Jerusalem, find the disciples hiding in a room, and they begin to tell them what happened. But they still couldn't believe. They've heard it from the ladies now. They've heard it from two of their followers, but they still couldn't believe. The Gospel of John tells us they were such in doubt that Thomas actually said, unless I put my fingers in his hands and my hand on his side where he is pierced, I will never believe. That's the statement, I will never believe. But what I love about this is instead of Jesus showing up and berating them and mocking them and just calling them whatever name, stubborn, dense, you, you name it, he shows up to them. Verse 36, he shows up, Luke chapter 24. The Gospel of John would tell us that he actually walked through the locked door. Just throw that in there. That'd freak you out, wouldn't it? They're hiding behind the locked door. Jesus walks through the locked door, and I love what he says. He says, peace to you. You know, you know why they needed peace? They were freaked out. <laughs> you would be too. You know, you're locked behind this door and you're, you're worried and you're hearing everybody talk about how Jesus is alive and then poof, he shows up. And what does he say to them? I love the graciousness of our Savior. He says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your heart? See my hands and my feet that is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. They thought they saw a ghost. He says, no, 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 I have, I'm real, touch me. He gave them many proofs. That's what we're seeing. In this time of intermission, Jesus continues to appear, disappear, reappear, showing them, proving to them that he's actually alive. You would think that touching his hands and touching his side would convince them, right? But in verse 41, it says, and while they still disbelieved, but they're kind of excited now, something's going on, Jesus said to them, hey, do you have anything here to eat? You know why? Ghosts can't eat. 
Spirits don't eat. That was the prevalent belief of the time. A spirit can't eat. So Jesus says, I'll give you another proof. Cook me a piece of fish. And he ate it in front of them. Many proofs over a period of 40 days appearing to prove the reality of the resurrection. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Over the course of 40 days, before his final ascent, he appears to them. He gives them proofs. He wants to convince them of the reality of the resurrection. And here's the point. The transformation we see in the disciples in this intermission began with Jesus convincing them with many proofs. So the question for us is, is, is if we want to get our hands on that transformation, we want to be a church that's a movement, right? How do, how do we, are we convinced? Like, do we really believe in the reality of the resurrection? Because really believing in the resurrection will change you. It will really change you. Because if Jesus conquered death, that means that death for us isn't the end. It means we have hope and eternal life. Paul would say if you don't believe in the resurrection, if the resurrection didn't happen, you should be pitied. Because if you're living this good and moral life and you're laboring for the gospel of Christ, but there is no life after this death, you should be pitied beyond all men. You should just do what Ecclesiastes said, eat, drink, be merry. But if the reality really did happen, Paul said your labor is not in vain because this earth is not all we have. There's eternal life. There's hope in this eternal life. So being convinced of the resurrection will change us because we'll live with hope. The disciples were transformed by being convinced of this. I think that this is why the enemy is, is so keen on trying to create doubts in our hearts regarding that Jesus actually came, actually died, and actually rose again. It's, it's one of the most common apologetic issues that most people have is that Jesus, you can't prove that Jesus actually rose from the dead. First time out of the country, Annie and I went to Israel, and um, we were working, sharing the gospel with Muslims in the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem. Y'all, I had never been out of the country. I'm from a town of six square miles up in West Georgia. I won't even tell you what it is, because you don't know, Okay. I'd never been cross-cultural. I mean, I'd been to Atlanta. That was about as cross-cultural as it got for us. We went to this Muslim quarter of Jerusalem. We're out on the street, and we're trying to share the gospel, and I ended up getting in this conversation with this, this Muslim imam, a local cleric, and he begins to have this apologetic conversation with me, trying to tell me the resurrection never actually happened. And his, his story was that the disciples just moved the body. So Jesus actually died, but when they put him in the tomb, they just moved the body. They came by night, stole the body, and moved it. So let's just follow this logic for a second. They got past the guards, no way. Moved a tomb that's immovable, no way. Not to mention that there's these historical accounts all throughout the Bible and extra-biblical accounts saying that he appeared for 40 days to over 500 people. You ever played the game of telephone? How, you know, you tell a story to one person who tells a story to another person, you get to about five people and the story's totally different. How do you do that with 500 people before GroupMe you know, or Facebook? They had no way of keeping that story coherent and, 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 and together, but yet it made it to 500 people. Not to mention they touched him. Like they touched him. They ate with him. But even follow the logic. If, if, if this was a hoax, like if they were just trying to cover up a lie, how do, you, how do you even begin to account for the boldness they had unto death for the gospel? You can't account for that. I'm not willing to die for a lie. If I know that I'm just trying to cover up a lie, there's no, will, no, there's no way I'm willing to die. But if I know that I saw him, touched him, ate with him, I'm going to be filled with a passion to share about him. And that's what we see. This transformation that happened in the intermission began with them being convinced of the reality of the resurrection. But what if you're not, right? I mean, if we could all be honest, all of us be honest, there are moments in our faith where we just doubt. 
just have some questions, maybe not as secure as we'd like to be. And what if that's you this morning? What if you're doubting? What if you're not convinced that Jesus died and rose again? I just want to bring your attention back to how Jesus handled that 2,000 years ago. He didn't berate them. He didn't mock them. He didn't say, guys, I'm so done with you. I'm going to start over. He, he, he entered into their doubts with them. He said, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise up in your hearts? Look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's me. Touch me. See me. Jesus hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you have doubts, he will enter into your doubts with you. He's that gracious. He's that good. He'll prove himself to you if you have an open heart. If you'll be honest with you, seek him about it. He's always, he's always doing it. So, first point, he, he gave them many proofs. That led to this radical transformation we see in the lives of the disciples. But the second thing we see in Acts 1 verse 3 is he also opened up their minds. He opened their minds. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He didn't just keep doing these magic tricks where he appears and then disappears and then reappears and then keeps walking through locked doors. He actually hangs out with them and begins to teach them, opening up the scriptures about the kingdom of God, which begs the question for us, what is this kingdom? Right? What is the kingdom of God? Well, we know from the, the Gospels that the kingdom of God was Jesus' primary message in his ministry. His first sermon is the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. But what is the kingdom of God? Our simple definition. We, we could teach a whole series on this, but the simple definition is the kingdom of God is the rule and the reign of Christ. It's the rule and the reign of King Jesus. Wherever you find the king ruling and reigning, that's where you find the kingdom of God. And that's confusing for us. It was confusing for them because when you think about a kingdom, what do you think about? A physical reality, right? A, a piece of land with some borders and a castle and a moat and a drawbridge, wherever your imagination goes. There's this kingdom. It's physical. It's here on earth. And that's what they thought the kingdom of God was. But Jesus began to help them connect the dots that the kingdom of God is not that. I mean, he told them plainly in volume one. Look at what Jesus told the Pharisees. He said, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor do they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you, a.k.a. it's right here. I'm standing here. This is where the kingdom of God is, where I am, where I'm ruling and reigning. That's where the kingdom is. He says it pretty bluntly in John 18. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not physical. It's a spiritual reality. We see when, he, when they preach the gospel of the kingdom, and they're walking through these villages, and they're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. When people respond to the gospel, when the kingdom comes upon people, what does he say? The kingdom of God has come upon you. It's this spiritual reality. It's not some physical reality. But all throughout volume one, man, the disciples were confused. They didn't get it. We even find in the intermission they're confused. Acts 1 verse 6, when Jesus has done all this, he's been with them 40 days, they actually ask, will you at this time? restore the kingdom of Israel, still not really getting it. They're just, they just can't get it. Their thinking was too small. Their minds were too close. They were thinking too nationalistically. And it, and it kind of blows my mind because he spoke so directly about this. I'm going to run through like six scriptures all throughout Jesus' ministry, only three years. He was pretty clear. Let these words sink into your heart. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. I am not going to win this kingdom with a sword on my side on a white horse. I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed for them. 
we see in Luke 17. But first, he, he, this is Jesus talking. He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. John 20 says that but they did not understand the scriptures that he might raise from the dead. Luke 18, for he will be delivered over the Gentiles, be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. Two verses later, but they understood none of these things. Don't you just kind of scratch your head? But how did you miss this? Like, how did you not understand that the kingdom of God was a spiritual reality and not a physical one? Before you throw the first stone, this happens all the time. Okay, what we see in this misunderstanding happens all the time. It's why 98% of marital conflict exists, interpersonal conflict. I believe it's a, a gap of expectations. There's this gap of expectation that existed. They expected a physical reality, a restoration of Israel's golden age, a time where they'd be at peace with their neighbors, they'd kick out Rome, they would just bask in wealth and prosperity. That's what they thought the kingdom would be, physical. They were so convinced that it would be physical, Peter was willing to pull out a sword and cut off a guy's ear for it. So convinced that it would be physical, when Jesus said, I'm going to die and in three days raise again, what does Peter say to him? No. You, don't, you won't die. He joined Satan's side and said, you can't die because that's not what kings do. Kings win wars. They don't lose wars by dying. He begins to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. They were, they were convinced that the kingdom of God would be physical. They expected it so deeply, they just couldn't see past their expectation. And volume one concludes with this, with their hope being obliterated and this physical kingdom being restored. But what does Jesus do in this intermission? Again, he, he, doesn't, he does give them a little bit of rebuke. We're going to see that in a second. But, but he doesn't berate them. He doesn't mock them. He doesn't start over with anybody else. He enters in and begins to communicate, explains, patiently walks with them so that their minds would be opened. Let's look back at um, the, the two guys on the road to Emmaus, Luke chapter 24, 25 through 27. And remember, these guys had just told Jesus. They don't, see, they don't recognize that it's him. And they just tell Jesus, we really thought he would be the one to restore the kingdom. Jesus immediately responds, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And what does he do? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He opened up their minds. He righted their expectations. He began to connect the dots for them, helping them sink in. And the next day when he does his little magic trick, walks to the door, eats the fish with the guys, what's he do with those guys? Luke 24, verse 44. And he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What was once a false expectation, during this intermission, Jesus began to correct. He began to write this. And he began to do it by showing that all of the scriptures, all the laws, all the prophets, all the psalms, all the writings, all of those testify that Jesus, the Christ, the king, would come and die. But on three days, he'd raise again. He began to show them that it happened all throughout the scriptures. Even that boring, seemingly insignificant book of Leviticus. Truly, I know some of you are such great Christians, you want to read the Bible through in a year, every year, and you make it to about Valentine's Day. Because Leviticus, you just can't get through it. Maybe it's because our minds are open to the fact that Leviticus testifies to the reality of Jesus. It's what Jesus taught. John 5, verse 39, he said, you search the scriptures because you, uh, John 5, 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
and it is they that bear witness about me. Matthew 5, 17, do not think I've come to abolish the Old Testament, the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill it. He is the fulfillment. He is the subject. He is the author. All of the scriptures are about Jesus. He opened up their minds. Could you imagine being a part of that Bible study? I know some of you, you're in Bible studies, local Bible studies. Maybe you're in a Beth Moore Bible study, and you're like, man, Beth Moore's the greatest communicator ever. I'm learning so much. My mind is being blown by Beth Moore. And I just look at you and go, I'm not going to argue that. My teacher's a little bit better. I've got a little bit of a Bible study. I'm going to one-up you really quickly. And then you ask, well, who wrote, who, who's doing your Bible study? The author of the Bible. <laughs> the subject of the Bible. Jesus, what a mic drop moment that would be to realize that all of this, Genesis to Revelation, testifies to the reality of Christ's death and resurrection. And I have five more minutes, so I can't do all of it, but let me share real quickly what I mean by that. There's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that point to the reality of Jesus and that were fulfilled in Jesus. Over 300. I'm going to give you eight The time of his birth was prophesied. Daniel 8 and verse 9, Jesus fulfilled it. He would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, he fulfilled it. He would be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, written 700 years before Christ, he fulfilled it. He'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, Zechariah 11, it was fulfilled. They would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, Zechariah 9, it was fulfilled. He'd be mocked, crucified, and pierced, Psalm 22. Eight prophecies that just gave you all fulfilled in the person and the work of Christ. Let's consider just the typologies. Look at some of the characters of the Old Testament that were true historical characters, but that foreshadowed something greater. Jesus is a greater Adam. Although tempted, he lived without sin. He's a greater sacrifice on Mount Moriah when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son. Jesus is better than that. He's the greater Moses who delivers us not just from the people of Egypt, but from the slavery of our sins. He instituted a greater Passover, That it's not the blood of lambs that covers us from our sin and heals us. It's the blood of the lamb, which is fulfilled in Jesus. He's the bread of heaven, not manna. He's the living water that never runs out. He's the king of kings that never wanes. He's the greater David. He's the fourth that you find in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rescuing his people. He's the greater kinsman redeemer, not Boaz in the book of Ruth. And just like Jonah, who went into the belly of the fish for three days, he chose to go into the belly of the earth for three days and one day rise again. We could go on and on and on. And Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus, and he's opening up their minds. And what happens to these men? Their hearts start to burn. That's what happens. It says their hearts began to burn. When we begin to connect the dots of scriptures and how it all is fulfilled in Christ, it'll change you. It'll transform us. We, we won't settle, right, for an event to attend. Because we want to be a part of a movement because we're convinced that this is real that it's true, that it changes everything. So let me conclude for us this morning. The Gospel of Luke, Volume 1, was all about Jesus and and beginning to do and to teach. Volume 2, the book of Acts, what we're going to study over the next year is what he continues to do through his people. Before it began, in that intermission, Jesus knew his people need to change. they got to move from those doubting, fearful. they got to be transformed. They have to have this dramatic shift, and he did that by proving his resurrection and opening up their minds to salvation history. I'm going to read the last few verses of Luke chapter 24. This is the the end of the intermission, and this is kind of how I want us to to conclude today. Jesus led them out, what is this, verse 50, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. 
And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Verse 52, they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Something's come alive in them. They're moving with great joy. There's this movement that's happening with great joy, and they're going to the temple blessing him, convinced that he's real, convinced that he's alive, convinced that his sin covers the sins of the world. I mean, that his, his sacrifice covers the sins of the world. So for us this morning, when we're convinced of that, when we're, when we're convinced by faith in the reality of the resurrection, and we get hungry and let our hearts begin to burn with the reality of scriptures and how it testifies to Jesus, I really think we're going to be well on our way to be in a movement, a movement that's committed to the gospel of King Jesus. And that's who we want to be as a church. So let me pray for us, and then we'll respond in a time of song. Um, Heavenly Father, we love you. And we are so very thankful for your wisdom, your divine guidance, that um, you promised salvation uh, before the ages began, as we saw in Titus 1, and that um, you're still doing what you always did. You're still calling people to yourself. You're still redeeming people. You're still making yourself known. You're still revealing to us why we were alive, why you went to the cross, the hope and the purpose and the life that we have in you. Your story is continuing. And we're humbled and just so thankful that we get to be a part of that story. And Lord, that's who we want to be. We want to be a church that is a a true community that reflects the community of Acts. We want to be a church that, that honors the truth of Scripture and yields ourselves to the truth of Scripture. But ultimately, Lord, all of those things play to the fact that we want to be a church that magnifies you, that points people to who you are. And we love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.